Hello, this is Harold Lapidus, and welcome to Episode 3 of the Boston Herald Podcast. My special guest today is singer-songwriter Peter Case. In the mid-1970s, Peter was in a band called The Nerves, and one of their more popular songs, Hanging on the Telephone, was later a hit for Blondie. After The Nerves broke up, Peter founded the band The Plimsolls, and their most famous song, Million Miles Away, was performed by the band in the movie Valley Girl. And I would say the song has since reached cult status, at the very least. The Plimsolls split up around that time, and Peter Case has been a solo artist ever since. And he's released a string of brilliant albums steeped in American folk and blues. A little over a week ago, I went to see Peter play an intimate gig at the Stubblebine Luthery in Somerville, Massachusetts. A cool little place with uh, instruments hanging on the walls and all over the place. I spoke to Peter in March when he played the Atwoods Tavern in Cambridge and interested in this podcast, if it ever got off the ground. And now that it was off the ground, Peter was still interested. When I spoke to him after the Stubblebine Luthery gig, I told him we could do the interview via Skype. And Peter said, I don't do Skype, and I would if I could. But he invited me to interview him at the home where he was staying as a guest. So I felt like a modern-day Alan Lomax. But instead of heading down to Mississippi and recording uh, an old blues artist, I drove to East Boston and recorded an interview with a modern-day one. Peter sat on the living room couch as I set up my laptop and microphone on top of a chair. I couldn't have picked a better first interviewee for the podcast than Peter. As evidenced by his live shows, Peter is an excellent raconteur, and he answered each question fully, eloquently, and at times controversially. I divided this podcast into two parts. Part one, which you're about to hear, focuses on his upbringing and early musical influences, discovering the blues, Joan Baez, and especially Bob Dylan. We also talked about his solo career on major and indie labels, a documentary that's in the works, and a new single. Again, like an old blues guy, Peter was asked to record a single for something like $300, went into a recording studio and recorded two songs in about half an hour, Milk Cow Blues and the Plimsoll song, Oldest Story in the World. And there are only about 300 copies, so if you want it, you better grab it fast. It has really cool artwork, and we'll talk about that later. And of course, Peter isn't doing this podcast for his health. He has something to promote, and that's a Kickstarter program. While doing these final edits, got the good news that the Kickstarter program reached its goal, but money is still needed for promotion and other expenses. Peter plans on recording two albums, a solo acoustic blues album, and a and being backed by a band with a bunch of new songs. The deadline is September 22nd at 3.33 Eastern Time in the afternoon. I wonder if that's because it's 33 and a third. Anyway, it's all on petercase.com. I ordered a couple albums, and you should too. And Peter talks at length about that in the podcast at the end. But before we start, I'd like to talk about a legendary local Boston artist, although known around the world, who just died, and I wanted to say a few words about him. I had a couple stories that I wanted to share. Rick Okasik of The Cars had a recording studio called Synchro Sound, and I worked in a little record store across the street, literally a record store, in the early 80s. And he used to come in all the time. And he certainly looked like a rock star, but he didn't act like one. He was incredibly humble, soft-spoken, friendly, smiled often. One time he brought with him uh, Malcolm McLaren, the manager of the Sex Pistols, who was also kind of a quiet guy. But my favorite story is when Greg Hawks of the Cars came in and he wanted to buy a couple things. I was at the register next to this guy named Peter. And Peter liked really obscure bands like Eyeless and Gaza and Eisenstand and Newbauten and anything that was really weird and uncommercial. So Greg Hawks was at the register wasn't sure what to do next. He gave uh, his uh, credit card to Peter, and Peter asked for ID. What could be more absurd than seeing Greg Hawks next to Rick Ocasek in Boston and needing to see the ID of one of the members of the cars when then 40% of them are standing right in front of you? One thing I remember selling him was uh, a David Bowie poster. It was from a European tour promoting Let's Dance. It was this big black and white and gold poster, and he, he bought it up as soon as he saw it. I remember one day at the store, I was telling him how much I liked the You Might Think video, which premiered on Friday Night Videos just you know, the day before or something. And Rick told me that the video wasn't really finished. It was directed by Andy Warhol, 
but it wasn't done yet. So they just looped the part from the beginning and put it at the end. And how many people know that? Not that long after that, I moved to Chestnut Hill and I would see Rick Ocasek in Star Market. If you don't know what he looks like, he's incredibly tall and you'd see him head and shoulders above everybody else. And just, you know, a regular guy getting his groceries. For a lot of people that I know, being in the cars was the least interesting thing that Rick Ocasek ever did. Produced a lot of bands, some really uh, uncommercial, like uh, Suicide and The Bad Brains. There was a Guided by Voices. He produced a couple of Weezer albums. A lot of uh, local artists, like uh, Peter Dayton. When I saw the cars in the early 80s, they had Peter Dayton open for him at the Boston Garden. And another thing is when you live in Boston, you hear a lot of Jay Giles in Boston and the Cars and other local bands on the radio. I would imagine more than in other uh, cities around the country. Not that they weren't popular, but probably around 1979 or so. My mother went to Belgium and she asked me if she could pick up anything from me. And I said, sure, just pick up some some records. That would be cool. So she came back. I remember the one band was Jo Le Maire and Fuse. And one was uh, something like The Bowling Balls with French spelling. And the third single was Just What I Needed by The Cars in a, in a really cool picture sleeve. So yeah, it wasn't just Boston. The Cars were popular all over the place. I guess it's not really news, but I thought it was kind of funny. So, you know, he's just a really nice guy. And, it, you know, it's a major loss for the Boston music scene. He really supported a lot of young bands and made a lot of people happy. So uh, farewell, Rick. All right, so here we go with the Peter Case interview, part one. The opinions are Peter's own. I'm taking no responsibility for anything. And if you hear something tapping, it's Peter's foot. And Peter starts by talking about how his family influenced his musical tastes. Yeah, my family was all into music. Uh, my dad played a little harmonica. His dad played harmonica, but, but they played like that kind of like old chord blocking kind of stuff. And then uh, my mom, she didn't play anything, but she was a... a Big, big fan of, you know, she loved Frank Sinatra, Nick and Cole, and Duke Ellington. And then my sisters, I have an older sister who was a big influence. I mean, she played like stride piano. She loved Fats Waller, and she could play that stride piano when she was like 13. She was in, be in there playing, and, like, and by the time she was about 15, 16, she could like really play the stuff and boogie woogie and rock and roll. And so she was... Uh, a fan of Fats Domino. I remember the Fats Domino came and played the Memorial Auditorium in Buffalo. I think, yeah, I was a little bitty kid, but they were really into rock and roll in my house. And so she went to that. The other sister's a little closer to me in age, and she was into it, but she's older. And I was kind of brought up by them. My parents were working, so it was just rock and roll in the house all the time, rock and roll. In fact, I had a, I had a mix on it, so wherever my phone is, I don't know where it is, but um, you know, I had a mix on it of all the songs we had in our house. You know, And it's like, like there was a stack of singles and 78s, and so they had Fats on 78, Fats Domino, Blueberry Hill, a lot of the big hits, you know, but it was like Jailhouse Rock, uh, uh, Heartbreak Hotel, uh, Chuck Berry School Days was his first big smash, I think, back by Deep Feeling, I used to play that over and over again, Rumble, back by The Swag, by Link Ray and the Raymen, and then, you know, they had uh, the Everly Brothers' first album, you know, that one they're off and rolling, you know, and so we had that in the house, and then... They had some records that like aren't that hip records like George Hamilton the Fourth, Rose and a Baby Ruth, you know. You know that's the record, like that's a was a like a drenched in like kinda like sun echo, but like not not that great. But they but a lot of then the La Bamba, you know, and uh O'Donna and all these things. So I just loved all these records and then the the long playing record came out and we got Belafonte and that I just loved Barry Belafonte, you know, just like six or five or something maybe five or six, and then the Kingston Trio came out. And I loved the, I was like, went crazy over the Kingston Trio. And, you know, all these crazy songs like Sloop John B that you know now from other things, they were on the Kingston Trio albums. Bimini and all these really great, you know, All My Trials and, you know, Scotch and Soda, which I used to do years later as a street singer, you know, and trying to get people's attention. But I really, really loved them. And Ray Charles as well, they played so my sister goes away to college and I inherit this like record collection from my games was like to play you know listen to the records they kept them all in a drawer underneath the like a you know a bunch of dishes and this thing and like you'd open up and they're just like loose in there a bunch of singles and then you put it on and you could listen to them 
And then they, my sister comes home from college and she's got Joan Baez's first record. And I love that. You know, we love Joan Baez. My, my mother loved Joan Baez. Everybody in the house loved Joan Baez. And then I bought a book about, you know, I heard Bob Dylan on the radio and, I, and the DJ would call him the mouth. And that's actually a, a really great thing. They go, that's the mouth. It was like something about like loudmouth Buffalo DJ. And they were playing like a Rolling Stone. And this guy's just raving. And I thought the guy's name was the mouth. And uh, and uh, <laughs> which is a great name for a band or something. We, me and Ron Franklin were talking about our new band, The Mouth. But but so I didn't know what it was. And then I was down to this little bookstore. I used to read my way through like all the adult books in this bookstore. And I was like probably eleven. And I'd read like James Bond or Ellery Queen or you know Agatha Christie. But then like uh, Sex Romer, you know Fu Manchu. Like they'd have all these books in these racks. And then one day. This book shows up, uh, Bob Dylan, The Folk Rock Story by Cy Ribikoff and his wife. I can't remember her name right now. Barbara Ribikoff, I think it was. And uh, I get this book. I start reading it in the bookstore, and I just can't believe, like, the story. You know, it's all about how he ran away when he was five and went to Chicago, and, like, Big Joe Williams raised him, and all I mean, or something like that, you know. Really incredible, you know. Like, better than, you know, Pinocchio or something. You know, just, like, an incredible story. And all those times he ran away and stuff. So I, so I actually bought that book and I was just obsessed with it. And then right at the same time, my mother came in one day and she goes, I heard this guy on the radio last night um, singing the song. Like, do you know what it is? It's like Mr. Tambourine Man or something like that. And she'd been, her and my father had been out, way out somewhere driving. Late at night they were driving home in the car and that came on. My mother, like, so she gave her the chills, you know. So she, she went out and bought the record, you know. And she brought it home. And now we've got bringing it all back home in the house. I just like flipped. I, I just, you know, like, wow. And I, I just obsessed on it and uh, learned all the songs after a while. And I just became, you know, and then that book. And that book went up through Highway 6. Then, then you know, so I think Highway 65, 61 had just come out. And it was early 65, I guess, when, yeah, when, we, got, when we got those records. Yeah, and the book came out there. And that's when we got Bring It All Back Home. You know, right around then too. Yeah, yeah. You know I mean, like before I had that. Before I had my mother wasn't in the bring. I was sixty one. She never heard it. But like the my dad would walk in the room and like Bob Dylan was and and then you know, you know he'd like come in and like it'd be like something's happening. You don't know what it is. And he's like, what the hell is that? And so then I I uh, I guess it was the winter of sixty five, and I I got I got the first record. And so now I'm into like Joan Baez and Bob Dylan, and we were listening to all this early Bob, Joan Baez records. And I had that first Bob Dylan record, the one, the one uh, with "You're No Good" on it. Yeah. And I just loved that record. You know, I just flipped out over it. And so like, at one point I could play that whole record as a set. You know, when I was a kid, and uh, and I just loved it so much. Cause to me that's like to me that's like the, one of the great rock and roll records. It's like it's like Elvis's Sun Sessions. You, you know, it's it's. Uh, just one guy with a guitar and harmonica, but it's just so incredibly arranged and produced and performed. I think it gets short shrift, you know, from a lot of people. Uh, oh, as he got good on the second record. That first record's like one of the greatest rock and roll records ever made, and it's a folk record. You know, to me, that's that said everything. You know, it just said so much. And he, he plays, sings and plays, and in my time, I, all the songs are about death, and like, honest, is great. Because, you know, I was afraid of death. I was already, like, really afraid of dying when the lady, when I was about... Four or five, the lady next door, Mrs. Valentine, died. And I just, like, it freaked me out. What, she died? What do you mean? Like, it, you know, I had a meltdown. And I'm like, I'm really scared of dying. And my dad, I am too. I'm like, well, you're scared too? <laughs> you know, it's like, this isn't good, you know. I was really upset about it, you know. And um, so I was, I had that going as a kid. And that was, that was part of it too, you know, that Bob Dylan's awareness of that. And so, of what's real in life, you know. And so you knew, like, you know, like, like when nobody's talking about death and stuff, that makes it like a lot scarier. Not that it really helps that much to talk about, it. but you know, uh, that record was really great. And then, and then Highway Six, you know. So, so I think then the first one I got when it came out, I think it was uh, Blonde on Blonde, and uh, I remember I was at Boy Scout camp. I was like twelve, and I Want You was playing on the way to Boy Scout camp, and so I go to Boy Scout camp and I'm in a tent with this guy Mark Van Duzer. I'm like, we're in the Bob Dylan and shit. And we go like. I'm not wearing my uniform anymore, okay? Like, I'm just going to dress in black, like, for the rest of my life. And me and Van Duzer promised each other, 
for the rest of our lives, we're only going to wear black. So we go out and like they're like, where's your uniforms? You know? <laughs> and so we tell them that we're not going to wear them. And they go, well, you got to wear it. So we would be all dressed in black, black t-shirts and black sneakers and stuff. But then we had like the neckerchief, you know, the Boy Scout thing on, you know. And so... <laughs> But the Boy Scouts where I was, like, you know, there was like, the kids were like, by the law, would make them go to a camp out, you know, join the Boy Scouts and all these hoods that like had their can wine in their canteens and smoking in their tents and everything like that. So um, that was right around when that all happened. And, you know, it took a long time to uh, grok all that. And of course, the Beatles and Stones and all those things. And, and I would check out the back of records, you know, all the usual stuff and learn about things. And I started going to the local library and trying to educate myself about, you know, find out, you know, these blues singers, everybody's talking, Josh White, you know, well, that's not really what I'm looking for. You know. Oh, Woody Guthrie, uh, uh, Dust Bowl, they had that at the library. Wow, that's pretty heavy, you know. And then uh, Mississippi John Hurt Today on Vanguard, I was into that, and all these kind of things. And so, along with my rock and roll, you know, I had a rock and roll band and we played we were, I was into Doug Psalm and all that kind of stuff. She's about a mover. And we used to actually, we used to actually started, when I was like 13 or 14, we had this band and we used to do, uh, when I was a cowboy by Lead Belly, but like a Doug Psalm song. Boom, dun, 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 dun. You know, it kind of worked, you know, it was like a Tex-Mex version of a Lead Belly song. It was pretty hip, nobody dug it. Uh, <laughs> but then I started meeting like these people at the Unitarian uh, coffee house scene. And they dug it, and so like everybody started like so. I started to make older friends, and that's what happened. That's what happened when I ended up. Anyhow, enough of that stuff about the past. But that's how I got introduced to that, and it was so profound because um, Joan Baez and Bob Dylan are that gateway to uh, that music, and Bob Dylan's a gateway to everything. So he, you know, it was the gateway. It's the gateway to so much. Is his work? It just it's like you know all different kinds of music. American music and history, but also literature and uh, philosophy, <laughs> you know, just everything, you know, it made it, it made it, and then, you know, I was a kid at one point, I'm sitting there and, uh, you know, I saw everything in terms of it, but it really helped, you know, because it, you know, somebody once said, art is what makes life worth living, you know, and so like the intensity that Bob Dylan brought to his music, you know, along with some other people, like the people we talk about, you know, and, and then all the people that you start to discover through that, you realize like how beautiful it is. But I opened up Shakespeare. Somebody had a paperback copy of Twelfth Night or something. I opened up and I'm like, man, this looks like the liner notes on the back of Highway Sixty One. <laughs> <laughs> so now I'm in this. This is pretty cool, man. Like some clown talking on the back of uh, you know saying like these outrageous things. And some of it's like in capital letters and stuff and like uh, you know capitalized and like, wow, this is really far out. I, I can't believe this was done back in like 1600, man. I'm going to check this out. And so I I wasn't going to school anymore, so I, I really uh, enjoyed reading those things. They hadn't been destroyed for me. And so it was a really positive uh, moment. Just to clarify, Peter did not speak nonstop just now. I did say a few things, but it kind of interrupted the flow and didn't really get anything, so I edited myself out. And for the next segment, I asked Peter about his first solo album from 1986, self-titled on Geffen Records, produced by T-Bone Burnett with uh, Mitchell Froome. And I love that record. That's when I really became a fan of Peter's music. So I asked him to talk about that and what it was like to be on a label like Geffen and indie labels and so on. You know, that was like a big moment because, uh, you know, a lot of what you do as a young artist is like you try to put, like, you just try to put as much of what you love into it. And like, so that was the, impetus from the from the nerves to the plimsolls as I was trying to like the nerves was like a very stripped down like minimal thing and a lot of things I wasn't really in charge of the nerves or anything so uh, when I got my own band I wanted to bring more of what I was into so I brought that 12 string into it and I also brought the uh, soul music and blues kind of side to things a little bit but then when I went but then the, this process started where I'm like just bringing more and more of what I you know obviously I'm telling you like all those things I was into as a kid, they weren't really reflected in the in the nerves or the plimsolls uh, yet. The band couldn't really, wasn't really going in that direction. And so I left, you know, I, I, I had it open for a while that I might stay with the band and we would make the left turn together. But the people didn't really, you know, it, they, they didn't feel it the way I did. And look, we just ended up on parting ways. And it was exciting and it was a big risk. And it was kind of like jumping off a cliff. 
in a lot of ways, you know, I did, I, you know, I hit bottom when, you know, the parachute didn't open in certain ways, but, but it really, it started something which is like my real career was what I think. I had the moment where we got promoted, which is in the plimsolls. You know, it's different from, you know, that wasn't something I really wanted, I wasn't going to want to live with. Uh, I wanted to add to it and bring more of what I love to it. So I brought the songwriting and the ability to just play the songs. My career is based on the idea that you can write these songs that you can kind of take a guitar and walk in any bar in the United States and sing the song to the whoever's in there and they'll get it. They might not like it, but they might get moved or get it. They will get it. And they'll, it doesn't have to be rudimentary or, or remember rudimentary, is that how you say that? And, and Buffalo, we say like documentary. But, <laughs> <laughs> documentary. But I always liked that idea that it was all in the song. You could write the hooks and the, and the groove and the words that would mean something to people and the whole thing and make something really powerful in a really stripped down uh, kind of acoustic way, which I'd seen people do. I'd seen a lot of people perform solo like that when I was a kid. Like I saw Simon and Garfunkel play to just the two of them one time. And I saw John Hammond Jr. play just the two of them. I mean, just the one of him. And I saw, who did I see? Other folk singers. And, oh, Lightning Hopkins. I saw him when I was about 15 or like 16 or something over here in Boston, actually. And it was so moving and so powerful. And it was just one person. I just really liked that. And I like the bands, too. I, I love band music. But there's something about the nature of playing solo that I really liked. It. The fact that it's all kind of projected on people's psyche in this really imagine you know they have to it, I don't know how to describe it but I love it you know I listen to that kind of music endlessly including like Glenn Gould or somebody just playing solo piano or Thomas Van Zandt live at the old quarter or anything like that I, I get a big kick out of it and so that was the idea and then we ended up fleshing it way out on, on the T-Bone record because it was on Geffen and mm-hmm. you had to and so we sort of started out with a kind of solo acoustic and then we fleshed a lot of it out so the record originally was kind of like that walk in the woods or ice water or something like that, but then we fleshed a lot of the things out, like t- like added the strings to Small Town Spree with Van Dyke. Who'd, he'd been a hero of mine ever since I was a kid too. So I loved Van Dyke because of Song Cycle. I knew that so record when I was a kid and loved it. Played it all the time. And I loved you know I loved Nilsson too. You know that Randy Newman record with Nilsson where they're just the two of them. This is probably the shortest album in the history of the world. Was it like? 12 minutes long or something <laughs> it's really short but it's a great record it's just Nilsson singing and Randy Newman playing piano the same thing you know it's that the thing that really impressed me so much you know I was listening to the Beatles the other day when McCartney goes uh, you know uh, every night mm-hmm. uh, a McCartney record and uh, yeah that's a lot like Nilsson you know because he comes out of some of these things and Nilsson would have this way of coming out of a of a, a vamp I mean, of a scat thing, like with a the whole other kind of sound and the voice, you know. It was very interesting. I love that, yeah. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I didn't think about it when I was doing that song, but yeah, that's probably, you know, a lot of that comes from that where you do the melody just with a scat, you know, like everybody's talking. At this point, I asked Peter about a couple songs on the Peter Case album. Uh, one was the song, I Shook His Hand. Right. That That song was inspired by all our heroes being killed. And so, John F. Kennedy, Bobby, John F. Kennedy came to the Erie County Fair when I was like five. But really what inspired the song was thinking about Martin Luther King, Bobby Kennedy, John F. Kennedy. I woke up in the, you know, when I was a kid and my parents kept me home from school when Kennedy was inaugurated. And, you know, that's how much that meant to them. And then Robert Frost read at it and I was like, I was like the only kid, like in the first grade, it was like into Robert Frost. You know, Robert Frost is great. You know, I mean, it's like psycho. They even gave me a some Robert Frost book about Robert Frost or something when I was like for my birthday when I was like really little. You know, and so uh, I shook his hand. I rode on a train going on. I was afraid to fly at that point for some reason. And, I, and the Plimsolls were going on one last tour to pay the uh, IRS. It's a whole other story, and. They all flew, and I took the train because I was like an uptight maniac. And so I got on the train, and just that whole groove kind of came out of just like being on the train. I was writing words like to, to, that, to 
I just wrote the whole song on the train. At this point, I told Peter that whenever I hear that song, I think of uh, the footage of a very young Bill Clinton shaking the hand of John F. Kennedy. Well, that occurred to me, too, when I saw that, you know. And uh, I remember one time reading about uh, Richard Meltzer shaking Jimi Hendrix's hand. That was interesting, too. You know, it, it's a tra- you know, it's a meeting of souls, you know. It's real, you know. I shook his hand. It's like a real person to you. It's not just a distant dream, you know. Kennedy, I don't, I don't really know in the long run what he meant, or Bobby, but Martin Luther King, you know, just such a giant. But all those guys, and they were all killed, and I guess you could put, I don't know if you could put John Lennon in there, what, how that fits in. You know, I'm not going to get into conspiracy theories, but but I really felt that verse by where it talks about, you know, I don't want to interpret the song, you know, okay. but it, it is about the pain, you know, there was a lot of pain in, in all that, and so I was writing songs about, about growing up in America on that record, and, you know, I told somebody, well, the record's about the collapse of the American dream. And it's like, there was no American dream, you know. But really there was, you know. Uh, there, that's what America is, is a dream, you know. American in actuality is a nightmare, you know. It always has been. But America in a dream is the thing that we compare the nightmare to. And, like, some people get up and, like, try to proceed toward doing the right thing. And, like, make, and it's not a concept of America. We don't even know if it really works, you know. Like, these guys actually made a thing where, like, all men are created equal and they had slaves. What the hell are these people doing? And it's just like, a, like America is like an out-of-body experience. You know what I mean? It's just so horrible. But they were right. The writing was right. You know, trust the art, don't trust the artist, I guess, is the story. Because the Constitution, you know, was correct. The practice of it was absurd. And led to you know uh, hundreds of years of uh, torture of people, but which continues to this day. But but the dream of America exists. But the American dream did collapse for the you know for a lot of people, and uh, we saw that happening as Vietnam went on, and uh, guys were coming home from Vietnam, and uh, small town spree, you know the violence you know, that's happening. And, I mean, uh, you know, walking the woods was another kind of violence, and so a lot of my songs were about my sense about violence, I guess. But people trying to deal with violent situations in a sane way, I guess, or insane way. People in bad situations, like you get a choice, you know, but you can put down the gun, or you can walk, you know, or you can go the other way, and you know. So we're all in America all the time now. We're like faced with like these decisions to. Uh, you know, it's really insane here. Like, we're hitting a bottleneck. So, I don't know. I don't want to go too far with that either. But that is what that song's about. I asked Peter about recording a song by the Pogues before anyone knew the song. T-Bone had a party one night. Like, I was like, T-Bone, you know, we were talking. We are like, it's really cool. We would sit around with T-Bone at T-Bone's place and play songs, me and him on the guitars. Like, you know, let's have a party. And then at T-Bone's birthday party, I remember uh, everybody sat around, turned off the music, and they got out a guitar, and they just passed around the guitar, and everybody's playing guitar at this party. It was, like, really cool, you know? And then, so that was a, a night like that. I go, that's, like, the greatest kind of thing, you know? I'd always thought about that when I first heard about it, you know, as a younger person, that people would, that's how they would play music. So we were at a party. Uh, it was, like, T-Bone, Bob Newworth, Victoria Williams, and then Elvis came in, Costello, and he uh, and I was there. I remember I got kind of high school drunk at this party. I remember at one point trying to sing. I shook his hand. And I was like, "Come on, man, spit it out!" You know, you know, <laughs> like trying to coach me through it. You know, and uh, but he sang. He just produced the Pogues, and he sang "Pair of Brown Eyes" just in this room at the hotel that we were in, T-Bone's hotel room. We were sitting around, and he sang it. I'm like, wow, man, that's incredible. What is that? That's a song by this group I'm producing, The Pogues. And so uh, I can't remember if it was that night or the next day. Elvis was standing there too. And we said, well, hey man, uh, would it be cool? You think it would be cool if we, like, well, we could record that song? Because we flashed it like you could get, like you could do what the, like what the Dylan, Birds did with Dylan. I mean, Dylan did, well, the Birds did with Dylan and put a band to it. And I really liked that record 5D, like Van Dyke Parks playing also with the Birds. And we kind of latched onto this concept of doing uh, the Pogue song with the band. 
and maybe getting Roger McGuinn to play on it. And Elvis said, sure. So he called to hold, and they got a hold, we got a clearance to do it. And so we got a, you had to get a license because it wasn't even out yet. And so uh, we did it, and Roger played guitar, Van Dyke played organ, and T-Bone played rhythm guitar. I just sang it, uh, and then the night before it all happened, I, I, think, I think we were going to... I can't quite remember exactly what happened, but we went to this party. Uh, it was like one of the, it was somebody, it was Debbie Gold who was at this party and all these people. And I don't know what we were doing there. T-Bone knew about it. We went out to this party and uh, I go into this room and there's just this one guy in there and it's Jim Keltner, you know. I said, man, I'm like a really big fan of your music, man. I like that song, uh, I Don't Want to Be a Soldier Mama. And uh, I don't know if he was putting me on. He goes, I got that drum part and that man, just incredible, man. I love that so much. And he goes, uh, Man, nobody's ever told me that before. You know, like <laughs> I think he was kidding me. I don't know, but uh, I was kind of, you know, I was, you know, feeling pretty loose, you know, at this party. And I go, like, "Hey, man, we're recording tomorrow. Man, why don't you come on down and play with us at the party?" You know. And then the next morning, I wake up. He goes, oh, "Yeah, sure, man. I will. Where are you at?" And I go, "Over, well, over at, you know, Sunset Sound or wherever it was." And then he goes, "All right, I'll be there." And then. Uh, I go, T-Bone, I, I asked Keltner to come down and play at the session, and I can't remember what he said, but then I wake up the next day, and I wake up, like, oh, my God, man. I go, what did I do last night? I, asked, I told, I go down to the studio, and uh, I, I go, like, the song's a waltz. Like, how are we going to do it? Like, what's going to happen? And uh, I go in there, and, like, his drums are all set up in there. And I go, oh, man, you know, this huge drum set, you know. I feel like me a fool. My, like, like, this, like, how is this going to work out? Because I didn't really know Jim Keltner you know, how great he was at that point. I mean, I knew how great he was, but I didn't, I didn't know how adaptable. He, he's just a great musician. So we come in there and I'm like, uh, Kiltner's like, uh, just give me a copy of the lyrics, man. Give me a copy of the lyrics. And so he takes the lyrics and puts them over here. And then he just does that. We start the song and he just does that, like that waltz, man. But it's just this incredible kind of marching waltz that he does to it. It just was so perfect and so great. The drums to me are the... I was like the really great thing on it. like such a great thing on that track it just blows my mind the way he played because it. it's very and I'm right with the lyric and the whole thing it's just fantastic you know I mean Van Dyke's doing this whole like you know Van Dyke-y uh, you know very beautiful uh, arpeggio and, the, and then Roger McGuinn plays like this fiddle line you know and it's like on the 12 and so it was really exciting to do that and have that song uh, be on the record I still think it's one of the great songs Somehow that Shane McGowan, you know, you'd write these sort of archetypes or something, you know, like that song, you know, I don't know why it's so powerful, it just really is. It's a very, very great song. We had a major label deal with uh, Richard Perry's label Planet before Geffen, and they were distributed by Electra Asylum, and, you know, we put out this record, like, really, you know, it was really disturbing, like, just how quickly, you know, it... Like, we were out on the road, and they'd already quit answering our phone calls, you know what I mean? <laughs> we were on tour, you know, in the middle of nowhere, and it was kind of a shattering experience, because we'd been, the Plimsolls was really popular in California and Texas, you know, really popular. Like, we'd pack clubs, break records, and then you go out, and you're driving around, out, like, out here, like, out in, like, uh, you know, Philadelphia or something. We've had fans in Philadelphia. I don't know. You go in the Midwest and stuff, and, like, just no, like, crickets out there, and you'd be out, you'd be out there for a long time. It was tough, you know, and uh, so I had that song a million miles away, and I went into Richard Perry, and I said, I want out of the, we had a two-record deal with Electra, and I said, I want out of the deal. He says, are you sure? I go, yeah, let me out, because I knew I had a better song, and I did not want to put it out with them. He said, because he was a nice guy, and he goes, yeah, goes, you're out. Okay, you're out. He was cool, and so we got out of the deal, and then we recorded the whole record the way I described it last night at that club. Well, I think I described it yesterday. I don't know. Maybe I didn't. I described to somebody yesterday. I played two gigs yesterday, so I can't remember. Mm -hmm. But we went into a studio and cut it for free, you know, with a guy that was like a janitor at a studio engineering it. And uh, then I had that record, and I put it out on Bomp Records, on Shaky City Bomp, and we put out our own version of it. And that that's the one that did really well, actually. And so all the labels were trying to sign us. At one point, like, all these guys flew in, like, you know, Clive Davis flew into a gig and all this crap and uh, you know nonsense you know and it was so nerve wracking like just the, it was like we had this manager that was like playing you know Al Teller and all these guys it's like oh god the suits kind of guys and uh, the people that seemed the coolest of that group were uh, Warner Brothers and Geffen I went into a meeting with Mo Austin 
and Lenny Warnock or I was trying to decide between Warner Brothers and, and Mogos. Uh, I just come into the meeting. You know, I, I always felt like you know, like like I was behind enemy lines at these meetings. Like I didn't belong. I felt like I didn't belong there. Like what am I doing here? I can't believe. I was just, you know I, I was afraid really of that angle of business at that point, which I'm not now, but I was as a kid. And he, I just didn't. I don't know. I'm just. It all seemed like a big scam to me. And he reaches in his pocket and he pulls out a quarter and he hands it to me. He goes, let me help you make up your mind. He hands me a quarter. I'm like just looking at the quarter and he goes, flip it. Okay. Heads, Geffen, Tails, Warner Brothers. Comes up heads. I go, I'll see you guys later. <laughs> That's how we made the decision. So, <laughs> so really weird. Because he goes, it's going to be the same in either place because we distribute them. It would, that's not, it wouldn't have been true though. It would have been better to be at Warner's, but I'll tell you about that. But so I went over to Geffen and I didn't even know who he was really. I don't, I don't pay attention to a lot of these things like that. Like I hadn't been reading People magazine or, you know, you know what I mean? I just, and like every time you go into a meeting with some guy, they always say, well, big guy, you're like, uh, where do you see yourself in five years? It's like you, managers and all these people would always say that to you. I like, hated that. So I wanted to preempt him. So I go, so, uh, so Geffen, uh, you know, what are you in it for, man? And he turns around, kind of like starts. You know, you can't believe I've said that to him. And he goes, Peter, I want everything. I go, okay. So <laughs> I signed with him, and Carol Childs was the person who signed us. She was pretty cool, but she she had like a totally mystical uh, approach to, you know, she at one point she had I, I won't go into all, but you know, it was kind of magical the way she she was trying to like the, because the. A&R department did not connect with the promotion department. That's why she's like in there, you know, trying to like it. But, you know, she had great taste. You know, a lot of the people I thought did. But the promotion department, they just wanted like White Snake and um, these kind of things. Like they really didn't care. You know, they had, they didn't know how to even promote. Like they wanted to like push cocaine and like, you know, whatever else they pushed on people like to play White Snake records. And that, that's how it worked over there. Very few, you know, Lone Justice came over there and a lot of other people. And uh, if you really had a hard rock, you know, you could probably get some promotion, but it was very difficult. We didn't get basically any promotion on that first record. In fact, they weren't gonna put it out for a while. So that was okay, but the guy over at Warner Brothers was this guy, Jeff Aroff, you know, and he ended up running this other label. And I get this call, go meet Jeff Aroff over at Warner Brothers. And he goes, this record's incredible. I love this record that you guys got on Geffen and like I want to make a video of you doing uh, I think he wanted to do a video Pair of Brown Eyes with like the Dream Academy is that a group? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, with their whoever made their it was either AHA or it was like one of these fancy videos you know I'm going to get the guy who directed AHA or Dream Academy or one of those I can't remember which one it's one of those big ones you know like yeah, like really? Yeah, you're gonna be in this video, and like we're gonna do that, and it's gonna be fantastic. We're gonna, but we need fifty. We're gonna match it, but we need fifty thousand dollars from David Geffen. So I'm gonna, okay, great. So I go back, you know, and then uh, the next day or a couple of days later, uh, he calls up. Aroff says, "We talked to Geffen, and he says I'm not putting another nickel into this record." And it's like when the record's just about to come out, because like somebody told him that I'd quit. Rock. He didn't understand. Now all of a sudden, like the. They're saying, like, Peter Case quit playing rock and roll. And, like, nobody, like, what's he doing? And so the record company, and so they call me into the office over there, and they go, we got this song we want you to do. And it was, like, this terrible song, right? I mean, it wasn't a terrible song, but it was a song I didn't want to do because it was actually, uh, you know, I just got married, and the song was called I Can't Get Over the One That Got Away. And, like, I just got married. I'm not going to sing a song like I Can't Get Over the One That Got Away. I didn't feel like that at all. I just had... Plus it was jazz and like I'm doing this whole other kind of like folk rock, blues, you know, you know, whatever you want to call what we were doing. And uh, Carol says, they want you to cut this song, Peter. And I go, well, I'm not going to cut, I don't want to cut that, it doesn't fit in. She goes, Peter, you're, you know, you're going to have to go up and talk to Eddie at the, you know, the president of the company. Oh, no. So I go up there to Eddie, you know, you got to go up to Eddie's office and talk to Eddie about this because he wants to talk. So I go up there and they go, Eddie's in a meeting right now. You know, so I sit down in this chair by the door and it's just like being in school, like waiting to talk to the principal or something, like when you get in trouble. So I'm sitting there and uh, the door opens up and John Hyatt comes walking out. And so he's in trouble too, you know, just like school, man. And he like kind of like looks at me and nods, you know. <laughs> and, he, <laughs> and then he walks away, you know. 
kind of like, hey, man, you know, I, I, like we read each other at that moment because like he was trying to get off the label. And, and uh, I go in there and Eddie's like, uh, all right, well, uh, I see that, you know, what's going on with this record? I go, well, and I use that line, you know, I'm just trying to put more of what I, I'm putting more, I'm putting what I love, really love into this record. I'm like, you know, we're having a great time in the studio and it's going really great, but I'm working with these fantastic musicians, but I'm really just trying to bring in all the different music I love and make like a real thing with it. And he goes, Peter, what we need is a little less love and a lot more hits. We need some, you know, and so <laughs> we need some hit songs. And like T-Bone the whole time, I'm going, well, shouldn't we have a single? Don't worry about that. Forget singles, man. We're just going to make the record. And like, if they want, you know, if they find a single, they do. If they don't, they don't. Because you know, T-Bone goes, if this record doesn't sell a million copies, I quit the business, was his quote. And so, uh, I mean, he announced to a room full of people one night at like Ocean Way or something, as we were listening to a playback. You know, I don't know what he was thinking either, but, but uh, I said, well, uh, if you heard this record, this song doesn't fit on my record at all. You know, it doesn't fit in at all. And he goes, I think it fits in perfectly. It doesn't. It doesn't sound. I go, if you heard my record, look, I got a cassette of it right here. Put this in your. He goes, Peter, we don't listen to music up here. He actually said that because I don't listen to music. I go, well, I guess I must be in the wrong office. And I just got up and I'll see you later. You know, and I went downstairs and then Carol Child was like, you're really stupid, Peter. You're stupid. This is going to ruin everything. So I go home. And it did ruin everything. They uh, didn't want to put out the record. And uh, um, I was just on ice, man. I'm like, you know, this is like 85. And we'd already made the record, but like now we're on ice. And they just sort of they were worse than on ice. We're, we are ice. And they, they uh, wouldn't even talk to me, you know. And then they hired this new guy named Tom Zutat. And Tom had just signed Motley Crue and like made a trillion dollars. They play. They gave him. He went. Well, let me see. He hired him. Let me hear all the projects you guys got in the works. I want to hear everything. Everything you guys have here is crap. There's only one record that's worth anything here. It's the Peter Case record. And they're like, Oh, of course, Peter Case. Yeah, he's fantastic. First time, you know. We'll get Peter Case in here. I want to talk to him. So we got. I went in, and then we uh, finished the record and got it out. And so Tom Zutat saved that. But uh, but then they didn't promote it really. Jackson Brown people assumed I was on that Jackson Brown tour because of Geffen, but it wasn't. It was because of Jackson Brown, you know, and uh, Andy Slater. And they they uh, heard the record and like this is fantastic. So they had me. It was like a godsend, like opening up for Jackson. That was like the only promotion that record really had. And I traveled with, ja with Jackson, and he was a great guy. He's a great person, and um, you know he sticks his neck out for people that aren't. A, you know, that need help. He, like, you walk around to Hollywood and Los Angeles and, like, his picture's up and, you know, it's like Telly Savalas in New York. You walk into all these shops and Jackson's picture in there, but you talk to the people and he's, like, bailed them out or helped out the dry cleaning establishment or, like, helped out a coffee house. He's, like, he's kind of an incredible person. He brings, you know, different people in the record of his studio and all that. So um, he took me on tour. We played, like, 50 dates or something, and that was, like, a, a great thing. But that was pretty much all that we had for promotion. And then by the end of the year, I came back to L.A. and I played a gig at L.A., the homecoming gig. And I'm on, I'm on the front page of the entertainment section of the uh, L.A. Times because the club was sold out. So I went out front and played on the street in 86. Right? I think it was 86. I don't, uh, maybe it was early 87. And I'm out front. And the photographer took a picture of me and a mob of people. And I'm in the middle of this mob playing you know, for this huge crowd. And like everybody's rocking out, right? And then, and then I'm walking by a Duke's. It's like a restaurant, you know, diner. It's like real popular, you know, like big line outside of people waiting to get into Dukes. And I got my guitar on. I'm heading out to Santa Monica to go to Steve Soul's place. And I'm about to catch a bus or something and go out to Santa Monica. And uh, there's Carol Charles and David Geffen waiting to get in the line at Dukes. And uh, I'm, I'm back from tour, like nothing had happened. And then David's there like, this is really great. Look at you. You're, you know, I think this is going to work. I think this is really happening. The paper was incredible, uh, you know, and all this stuff. But what had happened is he called down and he goes, like, what are we doing for Peter Case? And, like, it was like nothing, you know. So <laughs> he wanted to do something at that point, but it was kind of late, you know, on that record. So, the, you know, so he I kept, he wouldn't let me out of the deal. We tried to get out of the deal. And, you know, that's all that stuff. So, you know, uh, you know, it's not really the important thing. I mean, it, you know, I, I got, it didn't work out for me at the major labels. And, like, you know, I had dreams associated with, like, you know, I wanted to make a million bucks like the next guy and be a really popular artist. And it meant a lot to me. And it, 
uh, you know, the people, a lot of the people I love are like really popular artists, but a lot of the people I love are like poets and blues singers, you know, and uh, life goes different ways for different people and you just have to take, you know, the way it goes. And, and I'm not, I wasn't going to quit and like start, you know, what was I going to do? Go back to painting houses or something. So, I, I mean, I, I'm a musician. And I'll, I'll just keep working, and I could work, and I worked all over the world. After those major label deals fell through, I, just, I was on a bus in the, uh, on a way to a concert. Uh, I was playing at the, uh, like, it was like a big folk festival, and there was a woman on the bus, and she says, so, you know, I go, yeah. She goes, I work with Vanguard Records. I go, well, here's my new record. I just made it myself. Sings like how? And she goes, oh, thanks. And then a couple of days later, you know, it's like, hey, this record is great. We want to put it on Vanguard. Okay, let's do it. And so, you know, it didn't take any thinking, really. I didn't, you know, think about trying to get another major label deal because I, I just was fed up with it. You know, you get back in. It just wasn't in my blood to be in the made, dealing with another, the third major label deal where you still, where you get tied, your time is tied up. And they, they put you on slow burn, you know, for like, you know, they don't answer your calls and they put you on slow walk and... You know, like there's just all these guys that are like professional wrestler type mentality, like, you know, you know, real aggressive, you know, but not very thoughtful, you know, but they don't really think about what they're trying to do. They have one way of doing it and that's the way they're going to do it, you know, a lot of these guys. And so I didn't want to do that. I just got fed up with it. So uh, I just went with Warner, I went with Vanguard who were happy with the number of records I could sell and would actually increase it and let me do anything I wanted to do. And it was pretty much under the radar. So a lot of people were like, what happened to you after the Geffeneers? Well, I made five records for Vanguard in the 90s, I think it was. And they weren't that well publicized, but at least I was making records and, tra and playing for people and you know laying down some tracks. It was a tough period, actually, to keep going through the 90s. And there were moments there was like, ooh, you know, like, man, this is, you know... Like, and at one point, I remember thinking, if I can just do this for 10 more years, I'll be, I'll be all right. <laughs> So, you know, you, so many gigs on the road, you know, you'd be out in the club and they wouldn't have any idea what you were doing. You know, it was difficult at the time. But there were also things that were very rewarding about it. And I went to Ireland and that was fantastic. And England was fun. And I started going to Italy and, uh, you know, I did a tour of France at one point and Canada and, you know, as well as the States. And so, and I just kept on trying to write and write better songs and really focus on the writing. Somehow I kept on a hold on like high hopes for the writing. Somebody says, well, you can have ambition, but have it for the material. And so that's what it always was with me. It was like about, you know, about breaking the, you know, getting in there and capturing things and breaking that code and letting the songs take care of themselves. You know, letting the whole thing take care of itself after that point because, you know, I didn't have a good experience with managers. You know, Bob Newworth told me there's two kinds of managers. Uh, you, there's... The ones that love you and the ones that know what they're doing. And you need them both in one guy. And I never had that. You know, I had people that really loved me and then they wouldn't like have know how to talk to the, you know, the white snake people at the label. And then I had people that like never saw a show, but they knew how to get like the budget opened up. And you need them all in one person until just until the 2000s was the first time I really got that with the guy I'm working with now. I never had that. And so... I just didn't, you know, it just wasn't my place to have it, you know. I worked with Steve Souls for quite a while, but he's a musician, you know. He's like one of us, you know, and uh, he was a great guy to work with. And I love Steven, and we played together a lot. And uh, he's a great guy, and he's got a lot of wisdom about the music business, but he's not a manager. And so, you know, he didn't clearly claim to be, but he kind of like wore that hat for me for a while. And uh, it's all about the music, man, and making beautiful music and making something magical happen where a door opens up in the middle of like the daily life where people can go through to like see things in a new way, you know, something that's surprising. So in a way you can like surprise people just as good being an unknown person that walks in as you can on the concert stage. In a way it's better, you know, it's kind of more magical. It's like you're just some, you know, they, you know, it's, you know, you're not coming in with like all the dick card stacked. You, you are actually, but, but people don't realize it. You know, you're coming in off the street and you look like you're, uh, you know, uh, the cards are stacked when you write the songs. Songwriting is card tricks. You know, you know, it's stacking a deck. Put your best foot forward. You know, it's not improvised. You know, you, the songs, that's why you write songs, to put your best 
all your best ideas, ideas, things that you can bring to one song. It's why Shakespeare wrote plays. They didn't just go up and make up stuff on stage. Jazz does that, and, and people do it brilliantly. And that's a different kind of thing. But, but uh, the songwriting, you know, you're really stacking the deck. But, you know, Coltrane stacked the deck, too. You know, you read the book about Coltrane and how much he practiced. And, like, you know, he was constantly doing the same thing I'm doing. You're always trying to write, trying to get, find a way to make something happen. That's beautiful. The hole in the universe, or the or the place where you know where 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 you know you know you see, where it opens up. Or you see the stars or the clouds part or whatever it's going to be. You know, and uh, the way you know words can do that, and language and music together. And so you're looking for these things. You find these things. Actually, you don't really you don't have to you look for them. You just open up your wavelength, and they come to you. And uh, that's what I try to do. And they. It didn't really translate into, you know, I was a little bit ahead of the Americana movement. Like, I was at the forefront of it. And then by the time it happened, I was, like, already kind of, I'd zigged and zagged a little bit. I was talking to Guy Clark one time, and he says, Peter, it's not the early bird gets the worm. The second bird gets the worm. So when I saw Peter at Atwood's Tavern last March, there was a guy with a camera filming part of the show. And it was part of a documentary. So I asked him about that. Um, he's just the, the, the um, cinematographer. There's a whole team of them. That they just set the cinematographer on that trip just to shoot it with a hand camera. He doesn't usually do that. They've been uh, In Buffalo, they had a full crew, and then in L.A. and uh, New York City and other places. Uh, it's a, it's a, they usually have a sound man and a, and a uh, couple cameras. and a, you know, It's a whole thing. You know? But they're making a nice movie. They've made a beautiful movie. Of uh, uh, they made a movie of the Persuasions with, with Jerry from the Persuasions singing. Are you aware of the Persuasions? Uh, uh, that version that he does of Three Angels. You ever heard that? Like that vocal group. I know the group. Yeah, I've yeah, they're fantastic. Well, you should check out their version of Three Angels. But they did a version of uh, the song called "Lay Down Your Mount." It's a lyric by Allen Ginsberg. Music by Chris Seafried, who's the music director for this movie, and he was the music director for that movie. And uh, it's really beautiful with Don Was playing bass and this guy from Miles Davis playing piano. And, you know, Braddon filmed it. And, like, it's really, really beautiful. Yeah, like, I think, a big studio in L.A. And so we're doing some filming like that, too, in a studio. But they've been, you know, we've been driving around. I've been talking to them, and they've been filming me. And uh, they just got it in their head, you know. It was just like one of those phone calls. One day a guy calls up, hey, man, you know, we're interested in doing a movie. Like, Really? Uh, you know, like, I was like with my friend Frank Lee Drennan, you know, and we're driving like through the, uh, I don't know if we're in the Rockies or some weird place, you know. And, oh no, we we're out in the desert, high desert in uh, New Mexico. And we're driving along. This guy calls up, really? Like you want him? Yeah, I'm really interested. I want to meet you. We're gonna come up to Berkeley and all this, and yeah, and it just all happened, you know. So uh, I'll take it. You know, it's been fun. They bought my book and and. Uh, it originally, you know, I think the, a lot of the stories, you know, were in the book, and but like I just, they just got into me telling the stories and then singing the songs and playing with different people, and Ben Harper's in it, and uh, Van Dyke's I think in it, and uh, we'll see. Souls is I think going to be in it. He is in it. I think Steve Earle got an interview for it. So they talked to a lot of different people. So we'll see what happens. But it's pretty weird, you know, and I have no idea what to expect. And what anyway it goes, it'll be all right. So. I'm looking forward to it. it. Should be out next year, but I'm not. I have no idea when. We're not. They're not quite done shooting. I'm going down to um, the day the Kickstarter ends. I'm actually in the studio at Sunset Sound with um, a band. Uh, they, they put a, a band together. We recorded a couple songs with a full band. Okay, now the moment you've all been waiting for. Peter Case is going to give his final spiel for the new single, which is "Milk Cow Blues," the old blues song, and all the story in the world. It's a limited edition single. And PeterCase.com or NeedToKnowMusic.com. It's Need to Know Music slash Skunkworks. And it's an awesome single, just the Pete and his guitar. I can call him Pete. And then he will go into more detail about the Kickstarter program. And please visit PeterCase.com and click on the front page. There's a link to Kickstarter. It's very simple. You can do something as simple as just get the downloads to uh, two autographed CDs, to the albums, to free concerts for the rest of your life, <laughs> uh, depending on how much money you want to invest. So uh, there you go. Here goes, here's Peter. 
Okay, so um, there's a new single, but it's very. There's only 300 copies. It's very like collector's item kind of thing. It's called Milk Cop Blues. It's on. I think you can get it from my Need Need to Know Music or Skunk Works. Uh, it's got a painting by Lamar Sorrento on the cover. Uh, so that's pretty cool. But um, what we're really working on, you know, I write songs about the world today and what, what things that are going on. And thing, you know, I try to tie it in with like everything that's going on. So it's everything from the microcosm to the big picture. I mean, that's trying to, you put, you know, I'm trying. You try to reflect life as a writer, you know. And so that's why I wrote about, you know, um, you know, uh, in Water from a Stone, like uh, immigration thing, and like I also wrote personal songs about, you know, love and family and. Uh, there's another song there about a guy being railroaded into jail, and you know, uh, from his neighborhood to prison, and so uh, solitary confinement. But then there'll be a song about uh, Buddy Holly and the Crickets. So you know, uh, you know, uh, of course it's about them getting screwed. So that's another thing. But uh, so yeah, you know, uh, it's rock and roll folk music, and 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 that's what the new record will be but I think it's going to be different from Highway 62 we're raising money for it I'm also it's going to be with a full band on this one and maybe a more orchestrated record than Highway 62 was and then I'm going to play my I played my 12 string all over Highway 62 but I think I'm going to play the 12 string on this blues record I'm making it's called The Midnight Broadcast it's going to be me playing a, a number of blues basically pre-war blues songs that I'm bringing a new thing to it I'm trying to put a spin on it so that it so they're really my songs in a way like really getting into them as songs, not as blues or uh, trying to, you know, hot picking or anything like that, which has never been my thing, but beautiful songs. And so when you hear Mama Taint Long for a Day by Blind Willie McTell, it's a great song. It's not just blues, you know. It's like, a, a, a you know, this great song composition going on with Robert Johnson and Blind Willie McTell and Memphis Minnie. You know, they were great writers and uh, created great, you know, um, stories and songs. And they're about real things, you know, so I feel it connects with my, my other music, you know, it's all connected. I'm not just, you know, because there's a lot of blues music and a lot of it's, you know, like, you know, uh, like that movie where the, the band comes out and they're called Blues Hammer, you know. But, but uh, so, but what I'm trying to bring something, you know, I'm just really trying to bring the same thing I bring to my song, my songs I'm trying to bring to these blues songs. And the record, uh, the two records together are part of this Kickstarter campaign and you go to petercase.com and like the way it is these days there's no record company really that can support that supports the um, records for artists like me and we have a direct connection with the fans that's how we did Highway 62 you can pre-order the record in any format you can get a house concert at your house I write out these lyrics that are kind of like annotated lyrics uh, I write them out on this art paper like these things that so they have like commentary going on them and they're kind of cool and they're one of a kind type items I'm doing all that you can get all those through through the Kickstarter there's an advanced order on the record and you can get it, get it in all formats but we need to do it we got two more weeks it closes September 21 while I'm in the studio so we thought about well maybe we could have a telethon a live stream telethon on Facebook uh, to wrap up the thing but I don't think I'll be able to do that because I'll be in the studio with those movie guys finishing the uh uh, movie, but if I could, I would. So maybe if I could figure out a way to do that, it seemed like it would be a cool thing to do the live stream telethon of the Peter Case Kickstarter. But you know, there's so many important things going on in the world, and people are you know getting their operations and all sorts of other heavy things on Kickstarter. But you know, art, art, you know, takes its place in the realm of whatever the world's doing, and people can decide. But you know, you get the advanced copy of the record. So I guess it's in a lot of ways like buying a record or buying an album or buying a piece of art when you get the lyrics, or when you get a house concert, it's a whole experience in your house. And I'm, I was thinking of doing a thing where I talk about the nerves, the plimsolls, and my solo thing, kind of like what we've been doing here, but in, in more detail directly about the songs. I've done it before, and it's kind of a really fun way for people that know the nerves, or the plimsolls, or my solo work, to get it in their house and have their friends. People, Some people go in together on the thing. It, it's a bit more money to get me there, cause I, but we raise more money that way for the Kickstarter. But but uh, you could get people to all chip in, I guess. And you could have a, a cool thing like that too. And that's the story of it. It's a, I, I know we're gonna make it. I'm not quite sure how. We got two more weeks. We're about 65% of the way there. Petercase.com, and it's right there on the front page. Then you just click on right the pick, click on the Kickstarter, and uh, there's a movie there that it's actually an outtake from the movie that we're making. It's got. Uh, Ben Harper in it for a second or two, and we're all in there. And then uh, you can um, see what the different rewards they call them, what they are. And I hope hope you support it, because uh, 
this is how we're making new music these days. I asked Peter to give an example of how little money musicians make from streaming services and YouTube and so on. We had 2.5 million views of a million miles away on YouTube and you get a check for $16. You get almost no money and like Spotify is about the same. iTunes is a little bit better, but really not much better at all. And so the checks have really decreased and like the plays are up. But you know, they have these things where the guys who run the platforms are getting rich and they're giving away the songs for free so they can start advertising and other things and get and garner investment or whatever they do. They're big deal guys, you know, but they don't support new music and they don't give you enough money really to do it. So I'm, I'm 65, I'm on the road all the time and I love being on the road forever or how long I can keep doing that. But, but, this is, but this is how the direct relationship with the audience is how we're, how we're making the new music because these platforms are not, are not supplying it and the record companies are basically being beaten into submission by that too. And so this is where it's at. We need the fan support. We appreciate the support. Like we know what it means to people. And uh, it's a direct connection. A new thing really in the history of art, you know, where we're all we're a group of fans like that would support it in advance like that. So it's interesting. Uh, and it's what we're doing. www.petercase.com and then click on the Kickstarter. It's right there on the front. You can't miss it. And the singles on clear vinyl makes it even uh, cooler than I thought it was going to be. Oh, well, good, man. I'm glad you like it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a rockin' little record, you know, that single. I hope it gets on some jukeboxes. That would be my dream, you know. If there's still jukeboxes, that play play vinyl. All right. Well, thank All right. you very much. All right, Harold. Thank you so much, man. I hope we got something across there. Oh, definitely. All right. Well, that's it for part one. Pretty soon I'll be posting part two, where we talk about the early days of the nerves and the plimsolls a little bit. Uh, attending T-Bone Burnett's 40th birthday party, which Bob Dylan also attended, his time spent with Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, uh, the influence of Allen Ginsberg, uh, a couple of subjects that I don't know if anyone else cares about, but he knew Tom Hobson, who recorded the album Qua with Yorma Kaukinen, one of my favorite albums, and the Williams Brothers, the nephews of Andy Williams. Uh, the time he sang John Lennon's part for a concert at the Hollywood Bowl for George Martin, and the health scare was more than a health scare, as I'll tell you. It's near-death experience. And his uh, friends and music community kicked in to uh, help him pay for all his bills. And more about the Kickstarter program. So check it out. It should be up soon. And spread the word about this. And share it. And tell everyone what you think. And hopefully it's something positive. Thanks. Bye.